Hopefully that was better than the Batman Daredevil crossovers. I've never read them. Yeah, I've never read them either. They are, uh, well, uh, the one I'm I'm just finishing up the write-up for was the Marvel version, and it was pretty much a pissing match. Daredevil plays chicken with Batman. Batman's trying to run him down to the Batmobile. He plays chicken. I'm like, really? Batman's trying to run him down the Batmobile. Of course, swerves, but... (laughs) Wouldn't have been a very big crossover if he'd run over him. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Splatman. It's, uh... Yeah, it's it's neat. Luckily, I have other things to talk about in terms of Batman on that one. Good, good, good. Anyway, come on, gents. We're going to have to get this in two hours, and we have to do views in two hours. I want to get out the door for about quarter to ten. Back to the bin. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back to the Bins. And as you've probably noticed right off, the guesting month that is going on here at Two True Freaks has spilled over to this show. Now, Paul will will say that I am not a guest on this show, but I think Paul and Bill have done such a fantastic job of making uh, Back to the Bins their own that, you know, anytime I'm on the show, I am just a guest. But, since Paul and Bill are taking off for this episode, I pulled in two of my better friends in podcasting. Two men that I think embody the spirit of what we're going to be discussing tonight. Which is not really anything to do with anything. I just wanted to make a bombastic type. (laughs) I can't do introductions as as good as Trentus Magnus. uh, And I really shouldn't try to. But with me tonight to talk about... A man who, I think for the three of us, has a lot to do with us getting into comics. We have J. David Weeder. Yes, indeed. And Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks for inviting me. It's always lovely to talk to you, too. It's always lovely to talk to you, too, Andy. I'm not sure how to take that British flattery. (laughs) (laughs) It's It's always regular flattery. (laughs) Oh, blimey. (laughs) <laughs> is, 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 is this like Tom Fla- oh, what was the name no that was Michael Flatley who was the lord of the dance <laughs> that's Irish he was he was the lord of my dance <laughs> <laughs> man had some super abs though um, it's a, and fleet of foot he was like silver <laughs> he would have made a great Quicksilver and I mean that in a not at all kind of way <laughs> I think he'd have been fantastic which Quicksilver the X-Men Quicksilver the Avengers Quicksilver both at once. Oh, there you go. Both in Kick-Ass? I don't know. I haven't seen Kick-Ass, which is my sad omission, admission. I don't think that's something you need to feel sad about not admitting to, Dave. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a bad film, but I don't think it's... It's not like one of those comic book films that if you haven't seen, you might want to turn your geek card in. It's one of those comic book films you, you, you haven't seen because, well, you know, there's other things to do in life. I mean, it's enjoyable. <laughs> Nicolas Cage is good in it. Nicolas Cage is great as Adam West in that film. Yeah. Uh, it does a, a dead-on impersonation. And to be fair, up until 
it was really up until about like two thirds into the film, I was really enjoying it, and then at one point, I just lost all interest. Like towards the end, yeah, that's because just... the comic hadn't been finished, so they made the ending up, didn't they? Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. I think so it was something like that. Just to make sure I'm clear, you're saying Nicolas Cage was the best part of this movie, which is not high praise. No, oh, I like wait, Nicolas Cage. Oh, Nicolas Cage is awesome in everything he does. Even when he's awful, that's what makes it awesome. Okay. <laughs> okay. Look, 8mm, Raising Arizona, you're going to laugh, but Con Air. No, I there's no laughter Con at Con Air. Air. Yeah, that's yeah, a great Con movie. Yeah, Con Air is just awesome. But the bunny back in the box. <laughs> it's really funny to see the guy that paid Billy Bedlam, the guy he killed over the bunny, as a lawyer on Law and Order, like, every five episodes. Uh... What, but he doesn't have a mustache, but it's still him, and it's kind of creepy. And I just keep expecting him to take a bunny out at some point. <laughs> and then Steve Buscemi coming along and saying that, you know, for him, moments of levity are actually painful. But... <laughs> well, people listening to this show will be okay, then. Anyways, we decided, uh, amongst the three of us, to kind of have a theme with all of our all of the issues we've chosen, it's the it's still the standard a DC a Marvel and an independent. But I, 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 at least for me, the the man we're talking about tonight is pretty much directly responsible for getting me to start reading and collecting comics. And in a very direct indirect way, not direct way, but indirect way, he's responsible for every bit of podcasting I've ever done. Uh, he's a controversial figure. Uh, mainly because sometimes when he opens his mouth, he, he, he may not have wanted to, is probably the nicest way I can say that. But, you know, I, I collect comics for the material. I don't collect for the creators and what their personalities are like. And in the case of John Byrne, I, I have, in the past couple of months, realized what a, and thank you, Andy, for reminding me of this term, what a burn victim I am. mm uh, and it's and that's such a great term too, isn't it? It is. It is a great name, isn't it? I think he came up with that himself. I think it's brilliant. But you know, with the Superman books in 1987, I started collecting comics. Just you know, in, in the Superman titles in specific, but comics in general. And lately, I have just been doing my best to kind of get full runs of various books he's done. I've finally finished my fantastic four run out uh really cheap i don't think i paid more than a dollar an issue no and they're all really easy to find now aren't they when back when i first started trying to track down these earliest issues was awful and now they're in the 50 pence bins well it's funny because i got most of them out of the 50 cent bin and i opened up the first issue and it was signed by him i've so. done that i got an issue of marvel team up um spider-man and the hulk and on the front page underneath the indicia it's signed by him i i bought an issue for somebody on this show to be sent that hasn't been sent that may allegedly be signed by him (laughs) allegedly allegedly Allegedly. (laughs) along with a few other things that have been i just found today because i'm rearranging the office which if you're a collector with a lot of crap you know is an adventure Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> you know, Byrne, I, I think because of, you know, for lack of, you know, there's no other way to say it, because of his ego, 
uh, it can kind of get in the way of, uh, of of his reputation. But I think one of the hallmarks, and it's especially true uh, of the book that I chose, I think, that when he gets on a title, people accuse him of just making wholesale changes for the sake of making changes. And it seems like even even when I disagree with it, like chapter one, even though I disagree with chapter one, there was a thought process there. Chapter one just, just didn't end up being very good. But no, chap- chapter one ended up being overthought. Yeah, I think that, that's, the problem. that's very fair. I mean, art-wise, it's still fantastic. I think so, because you never get bored of bird drawing Spider-Man. But he overthought all the little bits of early Spider-Man that, you know, Stan and Steve didn't really give much consideration to. And lots of little things... The, the you know he's just putting into ankle people like having Spider-Man's spider on his back be blue instead of red as it was in the very very first printing of Amazing Fantasy 15 just so he knows that people will write in and tell him he's got it wrong so he can turn around and say no I haven't when if you think about it how many people are going to actually have had Amazing Fantasy 15 because it's been recolored properly in yeah. every subsequent reprint. And to me, that was just, I know you're going to email me and I'm just going to be able to turn around and say, fuck off. <laughs> and that bugs me. And then just the entire structure of that series bugged me that he would take a Stan and Steve perfectly formed 22 page issue. And let's be brutally honest. If there are any better example of comics than those 38 issues, I've not read them. And then he'd cut him in half, yeah. and he'd make like a cliffhanger ending of his battle with Electro, that when it was first told was a perfect done-in-one. And I know his argument was, well, it's not aimed at you who've read it before, but he, it buggered up the structure of the story. And he kept doing it. He did it through the entire series. He'd lead into the next Lee Ditko issue and then chop it in the middle and make a cliffhanger ending out of something. And the whole structure of it was wrong, and it was overthought, and there was just too much dopey stuff. Let's make Norman Osborn look, uh, because he looks slightly similar to the Sam, and let's make them relatives. And all of that stuff just ankled me a little bit, and it seemed like it did everyone else, because Chapter 1 was supposed to be the new definitive Spider-Man origin that was pretty much forgotten about and ignored before <laughs> it even finished. It was supposed to pull Spider-Man back out of the muck that the Clone Saga had put it in with readers. That's not a statement on the the quality of Clone Saga, but at that point, Spider-Man was in bad shape. And the person they turned to was Byrne. He was hired to do the job, and he wasn't up to this one. No, well, because it's, I think it's because with Superman, Superman did not have a definitive beginning and a definitive opening because he'd been messed with that many times and there'd been that many eras. You couldn't say, right, these seven issues are the story of Superman's beginning, whereas Spider-Man has that already. And like you said, Dev, it was trying to fix the clone saga or get that, the taste of that out your mouth. But if there's any character out there whose beginnings don't need messing with, it's Spider-Man. Everything else after that probably could have done with some fiddling. But his beginnings are practically perfect. And I think that's what people rebelled against. With Superman, you didn't have that. And that's why his work on that title was so good. Because he was giving us something that, even though he was rebooting the character, we hadn't really seen before. But with Spider-Man, we'd seen it all before. Those 38 issues are perfectly formed. Don't touch them. Leave them alone. 
And yeah. they had been in uh, in print, you know, between Masterworks and Marvel Tales and and the like, pretty much consistently since Spider Man's beginnings. I mean, between pocket books and 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 the like, you could pretty much get uh, and reprintings within the books itself. Uh, you know, Amazing Fantasy fifteen, or at least the story, not the comic itself. And, and when people did retell it, like Roger Stern did. Uh, he just shaded it differently and added it certain details, but kept what you know the tone of that of those eight pages in place. He just made it a kind of a more fleshed out story. And I love Stern's read. I forget which issue of Spectacular and Spider-Man. Pete Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man issue sixty. It's a brilliant retelling of the origin. Just excellent Frank out. Miller cover as well. Mm-hmm. But and and the sad thing is, is that Byrne was tasked with kind of recreating or re- revamping two Marvel heroes around the time of Chapter One, and both of them kind of fell flat. Now he stuck with Spider-Man longer, but uh, I was really looking forward to him coming onto the Hulk, yeah, in like n- late 1998, early 1999, whenever it was. And the first issue was okay, but as that six issues went on, it got bad in a hurry. Uh, There's something with Byrne and the Hulk where he he's like Joe Straczynski in Superman. He really wants to do the Hulk. He wants to do his take on the Hulk. And when he arrives, there's a great beginning. And then suddenly it's like he just loses interest and loses direction. Well, to be fair, his first run of the Hulk was interrupted by him leaving Marvel. So it's not like I would have liked to have seen what else he had in mind for that. Mm-hmm. And the second time I was just like. Okay, it, it, it's time. And, and thankfully, and it's funny because I, I've spoken with Paul Jenkins uh, at DragonCon several times. And one time he said he said something that kind of made me laugh. He goes, I had it easy. You know, I didn't have to come in right after Peter David. I came in after Burn. I had mm. it easy. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, you are absolutely <laughs> right on that, aren't you? <laughs> but we chose uh, from three different eras, basically. And none of his early stuff, oddly enough. But, uh, well, technically, Dave's story is some of his early stuff. But we'll, we'll get into that when we get into that. Uh, but first up, we have Mr. Andrew Leyland with the DC book. Yeah, uh, obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, when uh, thinking about Burn at DC, you immediately go to Superman. Or I do. Because that's why he went to DC to revamp, reboot, reimagine, revitalize, re whatever the Man of Steel. Um, this was so exciting when you were there at the time. I love Superman. I don't think anyone can can argue I don't love Superman. But his comics were always something I picked up as and went. The only time I really picked up Superman as a general rule every month was when Gil Kane and Marv Wolfman were doing it, because I still think Gil Kane's run on that book is severely underrated and oft hated by a lot of people, whereas for me, Gil Kane was just such a smack in the face compared to what Kurt Swan was doing. But when Byrne was coming over to Superman, this was great. It's one of only two times I have actually bought two issue number ones of a comic. And in my defence, they have two different covers. I mean, if I did that nowadays, I'd go broke. But back then... It was quite easy to do because they weren't very expensive. I was making an effort to go all the way into Manchester to go to the comic store every two weeks to pick up Man of Steel. I didn't wait for this to hit UK newsstands, which was normally three months later. I actually made an effort to go on the train and go and pick this up every time it came out. 
So when the series launched, he's ditched Diodano he's ditched Dick Giordano as Inca. We've got Terry Austin in to start the series off, and it starts off with a bang with Superman number one. But the issue we're going to cover today is Superman issue number three, cover dated March 1987. Writer penciler was John Byrne, Inca was, as I said, Terry Austin, letterer was John Costanza, colorist was Tom Ziuko. The cover, also by Byrne, is one of those symbolic things, unless Darkseid's been taking giant pills of Darkseid lifting <laughs> Superman up by the cape and Superman's all knocked out and looks like he's drugged and Darkseid's like, oh, I have you now. And the cape doesn't just come out of his neck, which was always intriguing. Oh, deadly Darkseid is the only cover copy. What do we think of that cover, gents? Just gorgeous. I mean, you you have him drawing Superman, which I am a mark for anyways. Mm-hmm. But, you know, outside of maybe Walt Simonson and Tom Grummet, I don't think anybody handled the Kirby characters as well as Byrne did. Because there was obviously such a love for them in the work that he did. And, you know, this this is like straight out of me playing Superpowers when I was a kid. So, of course, I'm going to love it. <laughs> I was about to make that comparison that I picked this up off the spinner rack because I knew Darkseid from, super, from uh, Legendary Superpowers. Galactic Guardians. That's the one I'm trying to think of. Dark side. That's that's how he talked. You know I know him, right? Frank Welker? <laughs> oh, Dark Side, yes. I thought you knew Clyde better. Well, so, yeah. So. It was uh, a Legends crossover. Yeah. Everyone remember Legends? This I was love chapter- Legends. I, I, I quite like Legends as well. I think it's very entertaining. This was chapter 17 of Legends, so um, we're dumping you in the, in the deep end here. Legends from the Dark Side was the title. As Lois interviews G. Gordon Godfrey about his I hate superheroes stance, Clark Kent finds himself pursued by Darkseid's Omega Beams through the streets of Metropolis. He's doing okay as well, until after taking refuge in the sewers, he collides with a maintenance worker and, struck dumb for a second or two, is caught square in the chest. The Omega Beams transport him to Apocalypse, where Darkseid is confuddled. He wanted Superman, not this frail creature. He dispatches Clark to the pits where he is set upon, tearing his clothes off and revealing his Superman costume underneath. Not exactly standard sartorial style for the grimy denizens of Apocalypse, and he quickly dons some rags to hide his true primary colours. Superman stumbles upon a riot with a girl who opposes Darkseid's rule being threatened with execution. Superman reveals his strength and the girl flees, but Superman is set upon by the shock trooper's pacifier, a huge robot. As you can't go wrong with Superman vs. Robots, they fight for a few pages until the battle takes them hurtling over the edge and into the flame pits. Damn, that was impressive. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good issue, wasn't it? It was very yes. good. No, your your synopsis... Uh, oh, right. Thank you very much. succinct it was, was... Because, uh, you know... Jeff and I did this on, on From Crisis to Crisis, and I'm sure it was like 16 pages long. Uh, whoever did the uh, synopsis for this one. So. <laughs> this was such a neat time. Just, I was becoming aware that the DC Universe was being rebooted, and I was on the ground floor. And I remember picking this issue up, catching that there's a crossover going on, and just being enthralled in this. Yeah, I uh, I I came into this late 
because I didn't start picking up Superman until issue 8. So, uh, oddly enough, I, I did before even starting collecting the, uh, the Superman titles. I picked up Legends number 5 off the spinner rack because Captain Marvel was on the cover. Um, yeah. And I remember being completely in love with the Batman inside because his cowl was black instead of blue, and I thought that just looked really awesome and wished it would be like that all the time. <laughs> but this one was a back issue for me, and I kind of read it out of order from the rest of the 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 the, the three-parter that it starts uh, because that's how I was back then. But, you know, I, I remember getting it, and just being enthralled, I mean, just right away, you have this really nice Lois Lane scene uh, where she has to remind herself that she disagrees with G. Gordon Godfrey, uh, who I think would... You know, it's really funny when you read a story from the 80s, and yet certain elements of it, like, ring true today. <laughs> like, today he would be using social media and be on one of the major news outlets having a show. Uh, instead of just being a muckraker in general. Oh, God. Facebook would have made Legends awesome. Oh. <laughs> they were even more awesome. Uh, but then you just jump right in, and, and it's funny because Burns Superman had a lot of Christopher Reeve in him uh, without being a, a creepy, like, you know, Gary Frank. And, but he he had a kind of a distinctive look on his own, and for some reason, when I was reading rereading the the first uh, the first uh, part of this, I was actually getting kind of a George Reeves vibe out of it. Like you you wouldn't have seen this on the Adventures of Superman television series, but since the the Clark Kent that Byrne wrote was so inspired by George Reeves, you, you can't help but kind of get that kind of feeling from it. Yeah, I so. love the opening because it's Clark. Yeah. doing stuff and it's just it's just a fantastic beginning the opening two pages are really the only sop to it being legends and they're awesome because lois is awesome she's very 80s yes. in these opening pages she's wearing a tie which was a very 80s fashion statement a lot of people give burn flack for giving um lois brownie red hair which I can only assume they meant they didn't actually watch the Adventures of Superman television <laughs> yeah, show. No doubt. I was never bothered by the hair color, but the Talia Shire haircut was never my thing. <laughs> actually, Talia Shire could have played Lois here, couldn't she? <laughs> Excellent piece of casting. Interesting Lois. Thing, yeah, and, there's, and the fact that she's wearing mirrored sunglasses is very 1980s, but it's a lovely scene. Just look how much dialogue's on page two. Yeah, no doubt. And tell me that's not a full full issue now. <laughs> yeah, it would have been it would have been more of them sitting there fl- and and padding out the conversation. Uh, whereas here we we kind of get, you know, what G. Gordon Godfrey is all about, and 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 it's nice to see a Legends crossover where G. Gordon Godfrey looks like G. Gordon Godfrey, unlike the Batman and Detective Comics ones, where. Who in the hell is the fat guy being G. Gordon Godfrey? <laughs> Why have they recast him with George Zunder? Yeah. <laughs> but when the, when the action gets to Apocalypse, uh, actually before that, I love that when Clark is about to get hit by the Omega Beams, he there's just this little small word balloon that says, damn. <laughs> oh, my favorite bit's in the chase where the Omega Beams are following him, and they yeah. go around 
somebody. Oh, that's beautiful. It's just like, like what the... Ream? Yeah, and you, and you can hear the sound effects, can't you? You can hear them in your head as it's happening. It's absolutely fantastic. I love the depiction of the sewer, especially in comparison to Hush, where the sewers were lovely and clean and lead-lined by Lex Luthor. Yeah, he, this is a dirty, dirty place. It looks like a proper sewer. How do you know what a proper yeah. sewer looks like? Have you... Yeah, I don't like to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the the I guess the watercolor would be an indicator. Yeah, that that's not clean. That's not no. <laughs> you don't get that in your mouth. Let me put it you that way. <laughs> You'd be you, you, oh God. Diphtheria would be the least of your problems. At that point, <laughs> so. But I love when we see Darkseid. He's got. It, it's not like a Spock eyebrow raise, but it's kind of like that, with one eye being open a little more than another, like. What's this? <laughs> yeah, he is, he is doing that quizzical, fascinating thing, isn't he? The, uh, it, Burn really draws an awesome Phantom Stranger, too. Yes. Oh, he's his dark side outside of Kirby is still my favorite dark side. He's big, he's imposing, but he's not impossibly so. No, because he's not as tall as Phantom Stranger. And, and it's really nice that Burn, you know resisted the urge to have the he's so huge how can he oh wait it's right there <laughs> god i hate that man that's a cliche i wish would go away he's so big how can it be so fast <laughs> comic book i mean seriously this uh this series is really uh rob kelly of the fire and water podcast has kind of given me a little crap about this uh has really kind of colored my perceptions of who the Phantom Stranger is. Because to me, for the longest time, the Phantom Stranger was the guy that just stood there. Like DC's Watcher. Uh, (laughs) I promise not to interfere. Except every time I get a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that prime directive that we've got, Mr. Spot. It doesn't apply in this situation. But then we see this really great scene of of him getting thrown into the lowlies and them like tearing him apart and the one guy grabbing the glasses and oh they make the world all blurry and beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and the paddle where he stands up as Superman is gorgeous. Yes, because uh, Superman's colors, the colors of his outfit, just contrasted with all what everyone else is wearing, is just fantastic. Coloring gets a lot of flack in this era, but that's just a beautiful panel. And you kind of get the sense that he's not hurting anybody. Like, they're being flung away, but he's not really meaning to to kind of cause them any kind of, you know, pain for the sake of it. Mm. No, no, he's just, he's just kind of shucking them off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I never got that he's hurt them. But that one guy on the left-hand side, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Does he have a beret on? Yes, he does. Okay. That was very fashionable amongst the uh, the lowlies. The uh, it, it's kind of interesting. I, I mentioned before that that Burns Superman had a little bit of Christopher Reeve in him. When, on the next page, when he takes off, the way the cape is hanging is very much like later Superman films, and the way they would position the cape when he was flying. And I really liked that because of it. I always fell in love with Burns' cape work. The way it flowed off the shoulders, the way, I mean, just the panel below it, he's holding it against his his leg. It actually feels like a cloth that would wave in the wind. The physics Mm. makes sense to me. Yeah, nobody drew 
a better Superman in flight than than John Byrne. He always looks aerodynamic and it always looks realistic and believable like that's what he would look like if he were real but at the same time you never forget that it's a comic book and it's proud of the fact that it's a comic it's it's fantastic but yeah his capage in regards to superman was fantastic how it was positioned when he flew and and he smiled when he flew flying's fun flying is why he's cooler than batman i don't care that batman's richer than god i don't care that batman has the cave and the batmobile and catwoman superman can fly to me that's always the trump card well batman's cooler than superman because batman's got this this no superman can fly but batman can no superman can fly andy go ahead and drop the mic (laughs) walk away the uh, the new gods origin uh, was really cool because I had, I didn't know any of this when I first started collecting comics. So no, this this may have actually been my introduction to all of this stuff. I honestly don't remember, but that's a gorgeous page as well, isn't it? Page twelve. As I was reading through it, I kept staring at. It. I kept coming back and staring at just the detail, even up to I mean, just the forever people in the background. It's just well, glorious. What what's great is that all the people from New Genesis except Metron, who's not actually a new god, and Orion, uh, are smiling. Even even High Father is kinda got a smile on his face. The evil new gods that are smiling, that's damn creepy. <laughs> Just like like he looks like he's got a skin fungus, but beyond that, you know, he's just got that like Kind of like the child molester smile, I guess is the best way to say that. I mean, it's just creepy as hell. I'm glad you said it. It was what I was thinking, but... (laughs) But Desaad is one of those characters that is easy to screw up. Uh, And I think Byrne did a really good job of not making him sleek or, for lack of a better term, attractive. He's, He's an ugly little man. So, and Calabax in the background, he doesn't know why he's there. He's just happy to be part of it. <laughs> so. it's so I like that Jason King's there as well. <laughs> Peter Wingard, though, with his, his, his stylish uh, flat cap on and the, the wonderful 70s mustache. <laughs> but the, the way he draws these, it's not that it's not his own style, but it's very much the lines are a love letter to the way Kirby drew them. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, this whole, this whole issue is filled with. Yeah. This. Yeah. And, it's uh, Kirby. It's Kirby homage without being Kirby ripoff. Yes. And, and I have to say this, any character named Vermin Vundabar is just, <laughs> is just okay. <laughs> yes. So now they, they make a reference to, uh, the, the hunger dogs graphic novel, which I still need to get a copy of. And I remember, kind of reading something about that in the superpowers tie-in comic the second series so it's just this is kind of a weird period for the new gods because you know their ragnarok had kind of happened at this point and it's kind of why even though interesting things could be done with the new gods and i haven't read all of uh the mark of van year series from right after cosmic odyssey nor have i read a whole lot of what Byrne did with the characters uh, in the late 90s uh, that Walt Simonson... I think Walt Simonson started it and Byrne came on to kind of work on it after that. Mm. Uh, but 
you know, to me, the new gods are one of those great concepts that everyone tries to bring back every once in a while, and no one has completely gotten right. I mean, Burn comes close, but I think it's you know, you know, Andy, you did a a Hey Kids, you know, your your that '70s show series. You covered an issue of the New Gods, and it's and it seemed like when. Kirby was doing it because he was establishing everything. Everything had this like new and awesome feeling to it. And I think everybody tries to chase that and no one quite catches up with it. I think the only people who really have gotten as close are Superman the Animated Series. Mm -hmm. The way they handled the New God characters. Again, another love letter to Kirby. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just had a flashback to the final episode. Oh god, yeah, that's so bleak and down downbeat, isn't it? Yes. yes. <laughs> I was watching I was watching all them on DVD. I had to buy them when we were in America once, because once again Warners don't want my money. So I bought all three volumes, you know, back when you could go into Best Buy and buy DVDs. And uh I got to the end of the series and I thought I'd watched the discs in the wrong order. I genuinely yeah, thought I'd got to the end of the series and like was the next disc. <laughs> Nope. Where's the triumphant return of Superman? Oh, we don't get that. <laughs> In fact, this isn't resolved until the opener of the second season of Justice League. So, which had a really awesome fight. No, I, I do like that Superman. Even though he, as we find out in, in the next two issues, he's he's being lured into a trap here. I like the fact that even though he's trying to keep incognito, he cannot he he can't really let these uh let these people manhandle this woman. I will say one of the few missteps is him going hold it right there creeps because <laughs> Superman doesn't strike me as someone who would say creeps, but you know, what do I know? It was the eighties, dude. Everybody Batman was saying Batman was saying stuff like lights out losers, so I'm sure Superman can call somebody a creep. Your move, creep. <laughs> well, if uh, if Kenneth Johnson was writing it, he would have called him a turkey. So <laughs> <laughs> the pacifier is a Kirby robot. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about this. Oh yeah, I love that he's called pacifier. <laughs> I also love that he's got a mohawk. Yeah, which makes him very eighties. But, it's uh, the Mr. T of robots. <laughs> he pitied a fool who messed with D, you know, for Darkseid. Wait, is this, no, also, they, is this also an Omac homage? It could be. Yeah, I mean, sad thing about Kirby is that, you know, as much as he came up with great concepts, once you've seen one Kirby, you know, issue, and you see another, you could, you could pretty much tell, yeah, it's Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> He's imaginative, but there's a sameness to it, if that makes any sense. No, I understand completely. Well, I think and, a lot of a lot of artists are like that. A lot of artists, you can look at them and go instantly, you know whose work that is. I mean, I think the problem with Kirby is he has been so imitated. I mean, the entire Marvel Universe's tech is based around Kirby, really. So I don't really think it's it's his fault that his work has a lot of sameness to it and there may be a lot of familiarity, but we're also bringing 40, 50 years worth of baggage of everyone else drawing Reed Richards' big equipment to look like Kirby designed it. There is uh, something funny about a parasitic entity known as the Glomer. (laughs) 
and when I first read it, for some reason, I, I read Glowworm, and I, you know, like the old toy, <laughs> I think from the 80s, that was really kind of creepy, and I was just like, Superman's being attacked by a toy, oh, it's not a toy, <laughs> it's a really ugly, uh, ugly little parasitic creature that throws him into a fire pit. It could have been Glomer, the like the animated character from Punky Brewster. <laughs> oh, Glomer, <Arky>. pile. <laughs> I love this fight scene. I think this fight scene is yes. absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and and, and 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 I think one of the, the, the great things about the issue is that it ends on a really good cliffhanger. Yeah, plunging into the fire pits and dark side just going... <laughs> and him not being sure he can survive, which was a, a hallmark of Burns' run, that he wasn't as powerful. So there was legitimate jeopardy here. Mm. Whereas the pre-crisis Superman going into a fire pit, he would have done that just to, you know, get some some dirt off of him. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to have done that to clean his cape, wouldn't he? Yeah. And here, you know, he doesn't know what's going to happen. So you don't know what's going to happen. Now, you know he's going to survive because this <laughs> this isn't going to be the last issue of Superman, but... Three issue miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, uh, you know, it, it was just a great way to kind of get to the next chapter because this was the first time the three books had crossed over into each other. Now, I will say this as awesome as it is to see Terry Austin ink burn uh, on this and the previous two issues, I really think the art took a definite upturn when Carl Kessel came on for the next issue. Yes. I think he I think for Superman he was Byrne's best inker. Uh Byrne apparently does not share this uh opinion. But Byrne he doesn't, doesn't like he anybody doesn't, inking himself. No, he, he, he doesn't dislike Carl Kessel's work. He has said he thinks Kessel drew redrew faces and such a little bit too much for his liking but he's never dissed him like he has with uh, nelson who inked him on action comics oh he actively disliked that to the point where he posted all of the pencils from action comics on his website to say look everybody this is what it should look like and to be fair with that one he kind of had a point yeah Uh, I, i thought the burn pencils looked a lot better than the final product uh, on that one, now, I was just—I I just read a comment at one point where he he was talking about the opening page to Superman number four, where Superman's coming in for a landing, and he said that the inker stepped all over the face, and I'm just like, "What do you? I, I really like that, but okay." <laughs> I know, but it's weird because Bird has also said that in his head, the closest that any inker has ever come to what he thinks it looks like is Joe Sinnott. Whereas, I'll be honest, I thought the Joe Sinnott issues of Fantastic Four that he inked didn't look very much like Burn. It looked like Joe Sinnott, like Joe Sinnott stuff always did. Now, in some cases, that was that worked. With Kirby, it worked. Yeah. But there's, I've seen Joe Sinnott, like Tom Palmer. Tom Palmer's a fantastic artist, but there are a certain amount of people, when he inks them, it just looks like Tom Palmer. But with Walt Simonson, that worked on Star Wars. So it's one of those situations where that inker may not just have been complementary to that work. But I, I agree with you. I think Carl Kiesel's work on Superman is some of the best work that Burns has ever looked. I was going to say some of his best work, but he wouldn't agree with that. But all right, we'll go with it. it's some of the best looking of yeah. Burns' work. I think it's great. Kiesel's inks were sharp enough that it didn't interfere with the line work that Byrne put down because Byrne's lines are very thick. And by that, I mean just the way he puts the pencil down. And, yeah, Kiesel just didn't interfere with that. He added some 
depth to that, but that's about it. And it worked. It worked just fine. That got yeah, I was no, no, no. <laughs> I was, I was just thinking. That's all. I was pondering what you were saying. I was, I was sorry to see Terry Austin go, but I don't think we got the subs bench like the no. listeners to this show are getting today with uh, with Carl Kiesel. No, not at all. Well, Kiesel also inked him on Legends, uh, and I think which is a completely different look. Uh, Go back and look at Legends again. It looks completely different to his Superman stuff while still being really good. I'd love to know how that happens. Was that Burns pencils? Was it the inks? I've no idea, but it looks a lot different. I I will have to go back and look because... I mean, I remember really liking the way Batman looked through that entire (laughs) series. Uh, Yeah, was Burn the first to do that? color the cape and cowl and the trunks and the boots black instead of blue he might have been but it it, but i remember being 10 years old and looking at that going god that's sharp Mm. that is just so great why can't they do that i mean i loved my superpowers figure and to this day i still love like the kind of the classic bronze age looking you know neil adams dick giordano uh marshall rogers type batman you know that's the you know with the coloring and all but there's just something about making that cape and cowl and the boots and the gloves black. Especially when they color the inside of the cape still blue. Yeah, it's just there's just something about that that it's just like, wow, that is that is all that is comics right there. That is everything. Because it, it makes more sense. I mean, you know, when they did it for the animated series, uh, you know, some of those redesigns when they moved to the kids' WB were atrocious. Like the Green Lantern, uh, the, Green Lantern uh, the Riddler one. I don't know how I confused Green Lantern with Riddler. You're just going to have to draw your own conclusions on that. But, you know, the Batman one that they eventually brought to the comics for a little while, I thought was great. What am I missing here? In num- I happen to have Legends pulled out, and it, 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 the black changed. It was not black in issue four. Suddenly in issue five... Black. Yeah, he's not, con- he's not consistent in Legends as to coloring the cape and cowl like that. Not just that, but his, you were right. I mean, his line work is a lot crisper here. Oh, but the his, actual art, yeah. On top, yeah, and then, and yeah, and, and it is, the coloring is a little off, but he's inconsistent all the way through because Billy Batson will look indeterminate amount of ages between the series. Is he 15? <laughs> well, is he 12? Is he 10? Because yeah. there are pages where he looks even younger than that. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was with the art. I think the art in Legends is great, but it's significantly different to what they were doing on Superman. I'll have to go back and check that out. Yeah. I really do. It's, it's been so while, but it's it's been so while. It's been a while since I've... It's I, been so raven. <laughs> okay. So do we got anything else on this one? No, it was fantastic. If you've not read Burn Superman Run, go and read it. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone long. listening to this has not bred Burn Superman run. Well, there are probably some youngins out there. And to be fair, you can get it, you know, in trade paperback form, or you can get it all off of uh, Comixology. Mm-hmm. They've got the entire run there. It made me so happy. It, it's going to be sad when I get a tablet that I'm going to be once again buying <laughs> comics that I have in like three different formats already. So. <laughs> They have frequent 99 cent sales. Just keep your eyes open. <laughs> and I will, believe me, when they did the Doomsday <laughs> one, it was really tempting. 
<laughs> it's just like, really? I can get the whole saga for about, you know, like $25, $30? I'm down for that. <laughs> I'll buy it again. <laughs> just shut up and take my money. <laughs> How many times have you bought that saga? Uh, Well, to be fair, I do not have the latest omnibus, but I want it. It's really good. I want it like a lot because it has a it's that gorgeous cover by Jurgens and Ordway. Uh, but I have you know I have the single issues. I have the original trade paperbacks, and I have the omnibus. And I've been kind of trying to look for it in the fifty cent bin uh, because I'm not really doing that much anymore because I was so disappointed in the omnibus that we got back in two thousand seven that I was going to buy the whole saga and have it. You know, like you know, do the custom binding thing. Mm. That uh, two things have kind of stopped me from doing that. One, they did release a really nice omnibus, and two, uh, Zachy Hansen has like the most amazing bound post-crisis Superman collection I have ever seen. And any trying to even attempt to do it would be I'd feel inferior. So it is gorgeous. Sometimes at night I'll pull up Facebook just to stare at the pictures. I was going to make a joke. I decided against it. <laughs> I figured one of you would either take the ball and run with it, or it would just be awkward silence, and it's a win both ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a Marvel book, and you know we talked about Burns, Superman in flight, and how natural and awesome it looked. Uh, I would go so far as to say that just about every character Burn drew that flew, be it superman or the human torch or namor the submariner it always looked good uh i picked namor the submariner number one cover date april 1990 actually came out on february 6 1990 and this is one of those books that i own specifically because of les daniels marvel six decades uh, or five decades of the world's greatest comics or whatever that book is called I don't know if he, if either of you have ever read or or if you own that book. Mm-hmm. I have it. Yeah, I don't think I've read it. I can see it on my shelf from here. It, it, when I when I got it from my sister in in the uh, Christmas of nineteen ninety one. Yeah, it had to be nineteen ninety one. I uh, I devoured it. Like we, we would always like open our presents and a day or two later go to my grandparents' house, my mom's parents. And I, and I read the book in the car, and I read the book at my grandparents, and I read the book in the car again. I mean, I just I just sat there, because not only did it have, like, all the history, but it had those great comics in the back. But I remember, because it was 1991, it had been a couple years since Byrne had left Superman, I still wasn't completely over that. And I was looking through the back of that book, and they were showing kind of the more contemporary of the time books, which are now, like... <laughs> over 20 years old, which is kind of sad and makes me feel old. But they had two covers side by side. One was Avengers West Coast number 50, and the other was this cover. And it was great. It was kind of neat to see two covers where the character is flying up and kind of, well, you can't tell if the Human Torch is screaming, but Namor here is screaming. And, and then just... This is such a dynamic cover. The the like the Superman one, the copy itself is minimalist. It's out of the depths and into the nineties, which makes it feel very dated. But uh, what do you guys think of this cover? Uh, it's 
fantastic. Yeah. It's really eye-catching. Again, I picked this up off the stands. I love this Nemo series. But the actual, the series as a rule is a prime example of my I must like Burns art more than his writing. Because the minute J.L. Lee comes on board this book, I drop it like a hot potato. <laughs> and I think that's largely, I don't think it's any respect to, disrespect to Jay Lee. I just think he wasn't suited to this and no. certainly not to follow Byrne on it. I think he's a very moody artist, and this wasn't a mean and moody book. And I just was not interested at that point, so I think I stopped with issue 26 or 27. Yeah, I didn't jump in until a little bit later than this, so I didn't see this cover for a while, but, man, the musculature is just... It, it looks like it could be in a, a medical manual. I kid you. I mean, you have the rib cage, the shoulders... It's just gorgeous. Well, his Namor is big, but he's not big like Superman. He's Mm-mm. not. He, you know, he's got a swimmer's body. Basically. He's sleek. He's very sleek. And I and I kind of appreciate that because Byrne, if there's a criticism to be had of his artwork, sometimes his characters can look samey. But here, uh, on the cover and in the issue itself, you know, he makes Namor very distinctive and yet still has kind of that classic flavor to him. I'm looking right now at the cover to uh, Special Edition Fantastic Four number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, well, somebody talked about it on the Fantasticast and said the words, John Byrne drew this cover, and I immediately had to go out and get it. He uh, so. drew a, a, little, a little bit of interior art, didn't he? He did some yes, pit-ups. there's four Pit or five up, yeah. pages in that issue where he stretches out the Submariner's origin that have never been yep. reprinted anywhere and weren't part of the original FF annual number one. Yep. I, I read that recently, but I didn't have the comparison for what was added and what wasn't, which is another testament to Burn. Yeah, that he, he really integrate. The only way you know is the page numbers disappear. And then suddenly you're like, wait a minute, it's gone from page 22, for example, to page 24, yet there was eight pages here. What's going on? And it's it's interesting that the Namor he draws in the special, which came out in 1984, is much smaller than the Namor he's drawing here. But again, there's still that kind of classic vibe to it, which I really like. The uh, overall title of this issue is Purpose, uh, and, and I could make a Avenue Q reference, but I won't. <laughs> uh, it was written and drawn by John Byrne with art uh, with inks by Bob Wyachek, who did a lot of his Marvel work around this time period. Uh, it seemed like if you were reading She-Hulk or you were reading Avengers West Coast, uh, I think Wyachek did some Avengers West Coast. I could be wrong about that, but even here... And I think for this time period and, and for the Marvel work, Wyachek was a good fit for him. Uh, not as good as Kessel or, or Austin, but still a, a pretty decent fit. The, uh, the titling of, this, of the stories is, is kind of interesting. He, he goes a little backwards because this is Epilogue 1, The Boiling of the Blood. Six months ago, somewhere in the South Pacific... A young woman named Carrie and her father are doing research. Reefer? Really? They're doing reefer. That's what they're doing. They're smoking marijuana off of a research boat. No, they're not, you idiot. (sighs) Let me take that again. A young woman named Carrie and her father are doing research off of a boat called the Oracle. 
they get some weird readings that turn out to be Namor, the Submariner, thought dead, but you know, comics. They follow Namor to a nearby. <laughs> they follow Namor to a nearby island and track him despite the dangers it might present. Namor is groggy and unsteady, but soon comes upon a village full of natives worshiping a mock-up of an airplane, much like it was an ice block with Captain America inside. Namor is displeased by the seeking of the divinity from the common place, and the natives don't take too well to his displeasure and start hurling spears at him. It's kind of like when Christians and atheists argue on Facebook, but with spears instead of comments, defriendings, and blockings. (laughs) Please tell me you're going to leave that in. Oh, that's part of the synopsis, dude. That's there. (laughs) I have no fear. Namor fights back by trashing the place, which sends the natives running for cover. Suddenly, he sees both of his dead wives, but it turns out to be a hallucination because it is Carrie that is standing in front of him, and they're all going to laugh at you, Carrie. They're all going to laugh at you! They're all going to laugh at you! And I just really upset the shit out of my dog. Very good. Um, Namor eventually shakes off his funk and sees Carrie and her father for who they really are. His instability plays into a theory the older man has about Namor, and soon he convinces he who is now alone to go back to their ship, the Oracle, as I said. That name becomes very important, and runs some tests. Epilogue 2, Family History. After an hour of treatment through Dr. Alexander's recycling machine, Namor is feeling much better. He asks Alexander what the machine is doing, but before that we get a little history lesson. The year was 1920, and an icebreaker named Oracle was busy breaking ice, and to do this, they were using explosives. This messed up things but good for the undersea kingdom that was below the ice, and Princess Fen is sent to investigate. Fen is captured by the sailors aboard the Oracle and brought before Captain Mackenzie, who gets a major case of the hots for the blue-skinned woman. The feelings are mutual, and soon they are married. This union doesn't last long because the king has found out where Fen was being kept, sends troops to free her, and in the fight, Mackenzie is killed. And somewhere, a guy named Arthur Curry is, ha ha, f*** you! (laughs) Months later, Fenn gives birth to a pink-skinned baby, who she names Namor, which means the Avenging Son, which kind of limits his job prospects. (laughs) Dr. Alexander explains that he's been studying Namor for quite some time and has come up with a theory about Namor's anger management issues. Humans have evolved to survive in an oxygen-rich environment. Atlanteans have evolved to survive in an an environment where oxygen is less available. Because Namor is a hybrid, he has issues with both. Too long in the ocean, and becomes oxygen-starved. Too long on the surface, and the opposite happens, leading to bouts of temporary insanity. Namor gets it, and even figures out that the machine Dr. Alexander developed has a moderating effect on his blood. The Avenging Son is curious why Dr. Alexander is so interested in him. Turns out Alexander was a little kid at the tail end of World War II and was fascinated by the heroes that fought in that conflict. One day, Namor and some of his fellow invaders came to town to give a speech. Dr. Alexander, well, not a doctor at the time, but you get it, uh, cut school to see this. He followed Namor on his bike, and wasn't paying, but wasn't paying attention and fell into the water off of a dock. Namor saved him and the bike, and there you go. Carrie fills in some more details, such as the fact that her father pawned the bike to buy his first biology textbook, which made his father very proud. 
With Dr. Alexander's discoveries, Namor has a new leash, uh, I mean, a new lease on life. Can't live <laughs> with him. You can't live without him. There's something. No, I'll stop that. And wonders what he will do with it. Namor says that there is much to consider. Prologue 1 The Power Equation. Several weeks later, Namor returns to the Oracle with some sunken treasure. He informs Carrie that he intends to bring, uh, bring about some ecological awareness with the only power humans seem to understand. Money. Namor needs Carrie and her father as his instrument, since the world believes that he's dead. And he must let the world think that he is dead until he can find a way to control the raging fury that dwells within him. Dun, 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 dun. He also makes a very subtle pass at Carrie. And by subtle, I mean not subtle at all, but it's still kind of sweet. I'm sorry, I treaded on your punchline. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> he practically says, you, me, now. No, seriously, when I say I want to see what your hair looks like in the ocean, I'm not talking... Never mind. Oh, um... Turns out it's hardwood floors. <laughs> Prologue 2. Siblings. Phoebe Mars is back from a not-so-pleasant business trip and is greeted by her employees. She finds her brother Desmond attempting suicide. She stops him and asks why the sixth richest man on the planet would want to end it all. He explains that he has no more worlds to conquer, but his sister is quick to point out that they do. Apparently, a mysterious group has purchased a majority share of the parallel conglomerate for $10 billion. <laughs> Desmond remembers that they were the ones that put parallel in a position of inconsequence, which is a nice way of saying that they put them in a position of inconsequence before, and now it is presenting a challenge again. Des asks what was the name of the company that bought the shares, and his sister reveals that it was called Oracle Incorporated. Who wants to go first on this one? Um, I was just going to say I was going to let Dave go first, because I went first last time, but I was going to say it sure is lucky, isn't it, that the size of the ocean that Namor would just happen to pop up near a person who has devoted his entire life to studying what's wrong with him and made just on the off chance to understand that he would ever meet him that very device that he happens to have with him at this very moment that sure was a real stroke of luck are you, are you saying it's <laughs> uh it's a little far-fetched i'm saying it's so far-fetched it's almost over the horizon and come right back around behind me. Okay, does it ruin the issue? No, 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 by no means. Once you get past that, this is absolutely fantastic. But I was reading it going, gee, there is an awful lot of lucky happenstance here for this story to work. Well, we were talking before about things that Byrne does on the series that he comes on, and, and, and we, can, we get kind of a twofer with this one. We get him fixing a problem that he saw was there, and in this case, everything he does makes perfect sense for the character of Namor. Yeah, because he, is, he has been depicted inconsistently throughout his history. 
I mean, his first appearance, he's like, let's attack the surface world. And then the next, he's like, oh, that's Sue Richard. She's a bit of a hottie. And then he's, let's attack the surface world with Doctor Doom. And then he's, ah, oh, but Sue Richard, she gives me the horn. Ah, oh, attack. No, attack. No. Ah, oh, I must find Atlantis and rule. Rule Atlantis. Attack. And he's just been inconsistently portrayed. And I don't mind this kind of fixing because he is fixing a problem with the consistency of the character rather than looking at something that another creator did and rather, rather egotistically saying, I don't like that, and getting rid of it. And, and to be fair, his science is a little dubious. Um, just because of, you know, there's oxygen up here and there's really not a lot of oxygen down there. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know... Water is one part oxygen. Um, it's two part hydrogen and one part oxygen, and together you get water. So, um, I'm not a biology major. I'm sure he did research, so I'm probably talking out of my ass here. But, but still, it is one of those. You know, it, it's a comic book trope to do something like that, though. You know, if you're going to explain why, you know, the difference, you have to kind of fudge the, or at least you know, kind of oversimplify the science. To make it work. And to be fair, you know, as preposterous as the idea of them just happening to be there uh, is, you know, everything around that works beautifully. I love the fact that Namor lands on this island and turns into that jackass that comes to the party and starts pissing on everybody's parade. Uh, It's just he, he just happens to be able to fly and is nearly invulnerable. And those sequences... You know, we were talking about how great Superman looked flying. Namor looks fantastic in flight. Just through, uh, parent, especially pages 9, 10, 9, and 11. When Namor's coming in for that landing and then he's swinging that pylon around like he did in Avengers number 4. It's just fantastic. He's a much angrier flyer than Superman as well. (laughs) You you get the impression Superman's enjoying it and maybe he'll do a couple of spins in the air as he's flying around and maybe a couple of somersaults just because he's having fun. Whereas Nemo's very, when he's flying. He does look like he needs a good BM, doesn't he? (laughs) Like, just about throughout the issue. So, he also, he, he draws it, but he doesn't draw too much attention to the pointy ears which I kind of appreciate because uh, it's not something I've ever really, I mean, I know it's something, you know, specific to the character, but it's kind of like, I feel the same way about black Adam. I don't like seeing black Adam with the Alex Ross pointy ears. Like, you know, the, the original iterations, I prefer him looking a lot like, well, I, I was very, I was convinced that, Black Adam for when he was in the JSA and was in throughout the entirety of 52, he was DC's Namor uh, in just about every sense of the of the character of, of the of, of the monarch that isn't quite a hero but not quite a villain and will kill you just as soon as look at you. So that would have been an interesting crossover. Namor and Black Adam. Namor versus Black Adam would actually be quite awesome. I don't see this, that people talk about him having stock faces. I don't think anyone looks familiar in this. You can argue that the hero face is a stock face that everyone draws anyway. I don't think his Namor looks like his Superman. I don't think any of his his characters... In fact, his Namor looks like Adrian Paul. 
Especially I, I, on, I'd be especially, down for that. Yeah, especially on the late pages where he starts floating with Carrie and his hair's all slicked back. Like when Adrian Paul would have it pulled really tight back in the ponytail. Mm. He looks like Adrian Paul. Yeah, so it's does. like, I don't know whether he cast Adrian Paul. Was Highlander on the air at this point? No, this was a couple of years before Highlander hit the air. So it may just be dumb look then that he looks like Adrian Paul, but he doesn't look like Superman. I always thought Adrian Paul in the 90s would have made a great Bruce Wayne in a Gotham by Gaslight and Masters of the Future adaptation. <laughs> but that's just me. Um, page 17. Byrne really does a good job of making you realize why Mackenzie fell in love with Femme. Because she's not quite human, but she's still gorgeous. Mm. Uh, especially if, with her flying up to the to or swimming up to the surface. Um, yeah, Namor's got a really depressing backstory, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a Marvel character. <laughs> well, that, that is fair, but it's just you know, you know, Aquaman was raised by his father, and his mother disappeared. Uh, so you know, he he kind of had like the opposite childhood of Namor. Uh, there was a dead parent. It just depended on which parent. But it's just really, really sad to me. And I don't know why it struck me so hard. Maybe it's just because I'm just emotional in general lately. But just, you know, the idea that they found each other and they fell in love. Because Byrne goes out of his way to point out she could have left at any time. Mm. She was strong enough to take on these soldiers. Is she's... that him correcting something as well, do you think? Uh, probably. Right. It was probably never really explained all that much or even thought about. Uh, but still, it, it's still a nice touch to the scene, you know, the, and, and, and like the shot of him on, on page 18 watching her swim. And you just get the sense that, yes, these two people did kind of find something in each other. I don't know if I want to call it true love, but they certainly, you know, did a really good job of making the blue and, and white beast with two backs. <laughs> and then her father's forces show up and kill him. And she names him the Avenging Son. I mean, holy crap. Talk about hanging a lantern on it early. <laughs> Talk about saying, um, Dad, I wouldn't be expecting to live to a, a ripe old age. Yeah, no shit. Because <laughs> when I tell my boy what you did to his dad, shit's going down. <laughs> I just want that image of Namor facing off with his grandfather and someone putting in the little meme, shit just got real. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, as flimsy as it is that Dr. Alexander and Carrie happen to be there at the right place at the right time, at least Byrne gives a plausible backstory for Alexander to be interested in Namor in the first place. Oh, yeah, and the panel where he's sinking... Because his bike's caught in his trousers and he's just been pulled down by the weight of the bicycle. And you can see his hands, so it's his point of view. And the people on the dock just watching him and not trying to rescue him. That's that's a wonderful mm. panel. Because you really do feel like, oh shit, I'm drowning. And I'm going to die. And yeah. these people aren't doing anything about it. And Nemo swoops in and saves him. I love that Nemo saved his bike as well. I don't know why I thought that was fun, but I did. Well, it's something, you know, I don't know. Have you ever really read much Invaders? No. Namor is really interesting in that series because Thomas really plays him as the, I like you guys, 
Uh, I hate Nazis more than I hate humanity in general. So right now I'm fighting Nazis. But you know, you always there would be moments where he was very human, and this fits right into that. It's why when Byrne handled Invaders material, uh, which he will uh, on this series, touches on it over on Avengers West Coast. He played with it like almost a decade before in Captain America. And you get the sense, one, he liked that series or liked the idea of that series. But two, that, you know, there there's something really interesting about Namor being part of a group like that. Uh, being part of a group in general. I mean, I know eventually, you know, sometimes he'd hang out with the Fantastic Four. And he was an Avenger in the 80s, wasn't he? Yes, I think so. That's where I was introduced to him, so late, uh, mid to late 80s. So to see him as part of, of you know, a, a wartime hero group was just kind of interesting. And Byrne would play with that uh, on several occasions. I did like him... I haven't read the rest of, uh, you know, the the entirety of his run on this title in uh, for well over a decade at this point. So I, I forget what happens with Carrie, but I like that, you know, Byrne is kind of setting up a love interest, but it's kind of unlikely. Uh, you know, just it it just doesn't. It, 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 when I first saw her in the in, in the series in the in the first couple of pages. I never thought, oh, this would be somebody that might end up with Namor, but uh, apparently he's uh, he's doing his best to uh, change that. So, right, okay, um, and he's very he's very suave. I mean, yeah, well, I always it could have been a part of this. It could be a part of I grown up with him lusting after Sue. I always got Namor was a bit of a player, and you know, look at him. If you're a he's woman, a speedo, dude, yeah, and nothing else. So if you're a, a woman and you're looking at that, you're probably thinking, oh, yeah. So fair enough. I mean, he's got that going for him before he even opens his mouth. I also liked that Byrne spent a couple pages establishing the antagonists of the series. And I also like that he plays with his own art. Because in the first uh, page... Uh, even though it looks like she's got like no like very small Liefeld feet, uh, there's a dude sitting there like staring at her. He's blonde. He, he, uh, basically, I consider him kind of like the Steve Lombard of this organization. And um, where is it? Oh, and 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 in the next panel, Phoebe says, "And tell Maitland if I catch him leering and straightening his tie once more when I come through, he'll find himself back in the mail room." So, <laughs> it's just kind of funny that she didn't she noticed that basically. And then you walk in, and her brother's trying to kill himself. And the artwork here is great because we see the antique gun, uh, probably an eighteen hundreds Colt, more than likely, and. We, we see her in the background, and it's just an amazing panel on page 30, I guess that would be. God, I hated how Marvel numbered their pages in this era. <laughs> God, it pissed me off. But we've established, okay, these are going to be the bad guys, but they haven't done anything overtly evil so far. Except for There's... that purple sweater. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 90s. 
And it's, so it's practically still 80s fashions, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the, the 90s fashion really didn't start kicking in until 92 or 93. So. <laughs> see, see, looking at Phoebe Mars, I'm just getting a Sybil Shepherd vibe. <laughs> of course, this Phoebe Mars looks a lot like his Lois Lane. Not spitting image. There's a, there's a noticeable difference, but at a glance, she's still got the Talia Shire hair. <laughs> I'm getting more Bridget Nielsen from Phoebe. Yeah, I was about to say more, oh, okay. more, more, uh, more Dolph Lundgren's wife in Rocky IV than <laughs> Rocky's wife in Rocky IV. So. If he dies, he dies. If he dies, he dies. Does that make Just up for not like doing <laughs> The what? Does that make up for not doing a la at the beginning of the show? <laughs> la, la, la. Ah. <laughs> doing, a, doing a crappy Dolph Lundgren? <laughs> Um, I love this series. I really did. But I love Nemo. I'm a mark for Nemo. I like that he's an arrogant ass. I like that he doesn't take any shit. I like that he's not a true blue hero. I like that one minute he's going to be, I'm for the Atlanteans, and the next minute he's going to be, all right, I'll fight for Earth. And throughout the, the series, Byrne brings the invaders back in an issue of this mm-hmm. series. Um, and he brings back Iron Fist because he didn't approve of how Iron Fist was got rid of, because Iron Fist was one of his favourite characters, which kind of plays into what we were talking about earlier, about him bringing other writers' work. I didn't mind him fixing Namor's moods, but it is incredibly dated now, this, this isn't it? This, this boardroom drama. Well, and and, and the ecological the themes as well. Yeah, but Namor's a good character to explore those themes with, just mm-hmm. like Aquaman is. So, but yeah, it's still fun, and I still loved it, and I still thoroughly enjoyed reading this, but it's much more dated than his Superman work, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, even though it's still relevant today, the whole, you know, man is ruining the earth, you know, and I will save it, but I will do it using the only language that you truly understand, money. So it's like, he had a mat on for anybody that was polluting and Gordon Gecko. so... (laughs) And again, there's nothing wrong with that. One of the one of the neat things, uh, even though and Andy and I have talked about this on countless occasions off air, you know, trade paperbacks these days don't have the the kind of thrill that they used to have because uh, you would wonder, oh, is there going to be an introduction and what kind of back matter are they going to have? But fair to fair point to Marvel that they have put out a lot of Burns' 90s Marvel work into trade paperback. <laughs> His entire Avengers West Coast run is in trade pa- in two trade paperbacks. Uh, they've got uh, a first volume of his She-Hulk run, the first eight issues before he left that title or was taken off, I forget, and then he came back later. And the first 18 issues of this series are available in trade over two volumes. And so, and they're relatively inexpensive and still available, uh, unlike some trades which you know go out of print and then suddenly it's you're paying fifty dollars for a prodigal trade paperback from the nineties. Yeah, I know this just and Batgirl Year One was the most recent one like that, wasn't it? Until yeah. until DC recently reprinted Batgirl and Robin Year One in one trade. Batgirl Year One was horrendously expensive, and it's just too damn bad because you know people actually want to read this kind of stuff so but uh, but i'm just kind of glad that they, they they have this out there and even though i have the individual issues i may get the trade at some point because 
as Andy will agree with, and, and, and Dave no doubt as well, sometimes you just want to read the books, but you don't want to dig into your comics. Yes. So having a trade paperback version uh, would be helpful. The The first one has the, the cover to this issue. The second one has Namor and the Invaders on the cover, uh, which makes me want to get it just because of that, actually. Is that the cover to issue 12? Yes, I believe so. Where you have the fire in the background, you have Cap and Namor and Human Torch. God, I love the Invaders more than I should. Uh, but that that second one collects uh, ten to eighteen. So basically, if they do a third volume, which I, I they may have already, but if they do a third volume, that's pretty much all of the run. You could do all of the run that he wrote and drew. Well, they burned it up to issue thirty or so, didn't he? Writing, he stopped drawing it with issue twenty-five. Exactly. I don't think I don't think I went past issue twenty-seven. Well, Jay Lee, you know. He, he is. It's one of those things where he is a talented artist who has a style that I don't care for. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just that simple, and that's okay. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make Jay Lee a bad person. It doesn't make me, you know, a bad fan. I just don't like the way he draws. And when you go from from burn to that, that's kind of a bit of a jump you know what i'm saying yeah that, i think that was my problem with it it's it's not like following john byrne with bob mcleod or someone Gary who Hamill. yeah someone who's a different artist but of a similar style you're following him with jay lee and it was like picking up a completely different comic mm-hmm. well just looking at the cover of number 26 i mean it couldn't it's striking in a very yeah. bad way plus his speedo got smaller under jay lee's pencil Oh, Nemo got bigger. <laughs> well, <laughs> he went to the doctor. He had one of those, you know. Well, he spends a lot of time in the water, you know. So I'm going to say it's cold in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the pool. <laughs> now he's got to go see Sharon Carter naked because that's fair trade. <laughs> what did you think of it, David? I'm not a Namor fan. I don't dislike Blast him. Blast for me. I, 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 that's why I was being as quiet as I could and hopefully sneaking <laughs> out of this conversation. You're allowed you. to disagree with me. I, I like the way John Byrne draws him. I'm actually reading the 80, 85 miniseries at the moment. Is that the, the Roy Thomas one? Uh, it's still John Byrne. Byrne's oh, doing the, the art. Eight, 85 Namor series? Yeah, the Submariner, the Namor the Submariner. All right. It's and I'm trying to get acquainted. It's just I never spent a lot of time with the character outside of the invaders. I was introduced to him through the Avengers, so I didn't I don't have a lot of reading under my belt for him. And I was never drawn to read him. Now, admittedly, on the Hulk DVD, you know, he was the primary feature on Tales to Astonish. So I have experimented with trying to read that, but it just never took for me. You've experimented with Namor? <laughs> no. Well, it's he, he is a- well, he is a charmer, isn't he? Yes. He, uh, what? No. <laughs> See, I love Neymar. I love his arrogance. I'm a big fan of people who are arrogant but can back it up. I hate people that are just arrogant, but people that are arrogant but then back up that arrogance with ability, I just have a huge soft spot for. And I'm I arrogant, just get but I can, bring a killer, I can bring a giant whale to your city and jack things up left and right. Yeah. And Nemo can back up his arrogance. 
And I, I just like that character trait. I like that he's not perfect as well. He's not a true blood hero. He's just who he is. I'm a big fan of Neymar. I've got a lot of time for him, especially when he's handled properly. And uh, like he was here. And I thought this was a great issue. In well, I was a moderately say, great. Having said all that, I did, I did peek at the Namor comic for a while there. Because I like the idea of Namor being in a suit and just being this tycoon type. I thought that was a cool idea, a great way to take him. So this is a series I'll probably come back to at some point. Just out of curiosity, trying to connect with the character. I think you'll like it. He he goes up against a lot of different villains. Burn does something very early on that kind of cha- is like a game changer for the character. Uh, and what and he takes away one of his abilities, which was kind of interesting. Mm. But at the same time, it was kind of cool. The first issues of the series I read uh, were the one where he where he it was revealed he was going up against the Super Scroll. And really, I think that was my first experience with the Super Scroll, and I loved the idea of that character. You know, he's got all the powers of the Fantastic Four, and he is going to jack your shit up. <laughs> and and I think Byrne drew him beautifully. And then you, I followed it for a little while when he was getting back into the the Iron Fist stuff, and I was just really enjoyed it. And it was kind of neat. That was still a time period, so this is in like ninety one, where I would just pick up stuff if it looked interesting. Or nowadays, you really can't do that. No, I mean it is one of the things that now. If you'd, somebody said to you, name was really good, pick it up, and you picked it up with issue four or five, it wouldn't matter that you'd missed the first three or four issues. You could jump right in and enjoy it, and now you're like, oh, I'll wait for the trade. And there's a part of me that thinks that must surely hurt sales, because at some point, I don't know if you guys are like me, but I'll say, all right, I'll pick up the trade of that, and then I forget. So then they don't get mm-hmm. my money. Yes. Whereas if someone had told me this comic is good, I would have picked up the next issue of that comic. And I think it's the same with television as well. The guy who did Flash Forward, Robert Sawyer, has said TV aren't interested in non-serialized TV anymore. But the downside of that is if you miss the first two episodes, you don't you think, well, I won't bother watching it then. And it's, it's exactly the same now with comics. I think they've, they've lost that impulse buy thing. I mean, the new She-Hulk series is fantastic, but I wouldn't say to somebody, right, go and buy it now. You may as well wait for the trade and pick up the first six issues. No, because now it's the, the financial investment between buying a couple of issues and a trade isn't that marginal. No. Not really. In fact, you can probably save money waiting for the trade. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm kind of fascinated about? That they actually have trade paperbacks on Comixology? Yeah, they do. Yeah, that, that and bundles. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. No, no, no. Really? You, you're. Why don't I just buy the individual issues? Well, my only problem well, with that is when the trade for Bruce Wayne Fugitive is more expensive on Comixology than it is to buy the trade off Amazon. Yeah. Well, that's kind of a problem with the the digital model to begin with. I really don't think... I can see going to the shop and getting Amazing Spider-Man number one for $5.99. I really don't see charging me that same price digitally. Well, here's the kicker, and I think this is how Marvel is doing it right. You could go to the shop, buy that comic. Marvel will include a code for a free download. Yeah, I love that. I think that's fantastic. And that it's no more expensive than comics that don't have the digital code. 
Mm-hmm. And because I've, I've got all my Daredevil issues on my phone because I regularly will just go back and flick through them. Because yes. Mike and I have discussed this, there's nothing more convenient than being sat in a doctor's waiting room waiting to go and see the doctor and being able to go, I'll read this month's Daredevil again. Much more convenient than lugging a bunch of comics around with you or even having your tablet with you. Your phone's on you at all times. And I love that Marvel do that. I think that's, mm-hmm. They don't get enough credit for that, I don't think. No, Marvel's Marvel's model is is pretty spot on with the digital. They 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 seem to be playing fair with the retailers. Because why would I not go buy a physical comic, sit down, read it for the? I mean, just the experience of sitting down, having a meal, and reading a comic is unparalleled for me. And yeah. then I can download. And then not only can I download that digital and have it later and easier to bring around, I can loan out a comic to a friend and start spreading the word. That, the, you know, Daredevil's been a great book. You should read this and not have mm. to worry too much about not getting that copy back. Exactamon. And Chris Samney, his work does look better on the printed page because that's how he's yes. designing it. But, yeah, for the convenience and for not paying any extra, you get the digital copy. I think that should be standard across the board. Mm-hmm. I think that should be the same with trade paperbacks and with regular books because I do think it will make people continue to buy regular books. Because like you said, the theory is, well, I can pay the same price, but I've got the physical copy as well as the digital copy. And I, th- I think that's the way forward. I think Marvel have really got it sorted in that regard. Yep. All righty, we got anything else on this issue? That'd be a no, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> the cricket you sound, uh, cr- dang it. The cricket sound you hear signals no. <laughs> I don't feel Dave. like I don't like giving my words in order. Yes, I have the indie book, which is a bit dubious because it's technically Dark Horse, which is upper crust indie. But mine still is, indie though. Yeah, okay. Mine is uh, Critical Error number one, which I have a standalone copy, but apparently it was originally printed in the Art of John Byrne. When did that come out? Uh, I'm just having a look for you. The Art of John Byrne is labeled Volume 1, 1980. Okay. Doesn't my, have a month or anything. My apparent reprint copy, standalone, was printed by Dark Horse in Ju- cover dated July 1992, came out August 11th of that year. It was written, drawn, and pretty much everything by John L. Byrne, except for colorist Matt Webb. And the story opens with a large spaceship crash-landed on a moon-like surface. Surface, let me try that again. The story opens with a large spaceship crash-landed on a moon-like surface, and the only survivor, a robust man with a white beard, awakens. Searching the wreckage, he finds his crew dead and his food contaminated by a radiation leak. So, he makes his way across the lunar landscape in a spacesuit. Mark that down. Until he finds a very large dome. Inside the dome, he finds a biosphere filled with a lush, jungle-like atmosphere and exotic animals, so he sheds his spacesuit. You know, spacesuits that are needed on a lunar landscape. Note that again. But he makes his way into the biosphere, where he eventually finds two sets of footprints in a strange pattern. One is a human set of footprints, the other a larger, more alien set of prints. He soon finds the owner of the human footprints, a nubile, topless woman, wearing, in my copy, only a loincloth, apparently in the other copies, a little bit less. Yes, clothes are for lesser mortals in the the old version. (laughs) Well, she leads him to her makeshelter made from stones that are suspiciously too large for the girl to lift. 
The girl is kind and gives the man food, and he shows off his blaster. I mean his laser pistol, just to be clear. When he shoots and kills an exotic bird, the girl flees in terror. The man is able to find her hiding near a lake, and he promptly falls into said lake and decides to heck with it. He slips out of his onesie and goes for a swim. The girl quickly follows, and this leads to some sweet, sweet loving. After the sweet sex, the man awakens at the shelter and notices that his pistol is gone. The gun, just to be clear. Paranoid, he climbs to the top of the shelter and spots the girl entering the technical center of the biosphere and rushes after her. Inside the cold hallways, he runs into a menacing-looking robot, and the man realizes that the girl is either a shapeshifter or the bait in the robot's man trap. The man flees the biosphere as a rescue ship arrives, and he rushes out to the lunar surface without a spacesuit. Just want to point it out. <laughs> and he leaves the girl out of the planet's lunar surface without a spacesuit as well. And as his ship leaves, the girl kneels and weeps, and the robot steps out on the sands to comfort her. In an epilogue, we see the man, much later, drinking alone at a bar, haunted by the experience. And the girl plays with the baby as the protective robot looks on. I thought about using Michael's synopsis. Is that the guy where is that the one where the guy lands on the planet, gets the girl pregnant, and hightails it out of there? <laughs> that synopsis would have been awesome. Yes. <laughs> guy crash lands on the planet, has sex, leaves. Yep. Ah, <laughs> uh, and that man's name was Bob Tiberius Kirk. <laughs> No, this girl's not got green skin. Green skin is hot. I don't care what Wait, was James says. Kirk's mom green skinned? No, but, but she should have been. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants that, to... that would have made his, his attraction to them kind of creepy, though. Really <laughs> or appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this issue was really good. It's a 2000 AD comic, isn't it? He won. He was inspired shot. by one. Was he? Is that where it came from? Right. I think we covered this on the kids, but I don't remember now. Oh, I should probably note: there's not a single bit of dialogue. It's all silent. No. So you did an excellent job surmising it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, it's it's a straightforward story, and Byrne was talking about how he had to to flesh it out because of the silence and. It's a testament to Byrne's storytelling that he can pull this off with a cohesive story without any dialogue at all. Yeah, I, I, I was going to write a whole like uh, pun-filled like review of this uh, by talking about tracts of land and <laughs> firm round melons and stuff like that but it just i just decided uh, i i'm not that funny so but still it, it, it's kind of interesting it's always kind of funny to me i guess i should say that it, it's just like okay we're gonna see the art of john byrne and what john byrne wants to draw is naked women but <laughs> i know that's not true but it, it, it's something you could say uh, you know to be snarky but what i like about this story is that because there are there is no dialogue, you've really got to infer a lot from the artwork. So the artwork becomes even more important than it usually is. Mm-hmm. 
And through the body language, you can see just how innocent this girl really is. Um, that she would stand there naked, pretty much, in front of this guy and not be embarrassed shows that, you know, to her, this is just completely normal. And that, to me, is why this isn't sexist in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Even though we don't get to see, you know, little spaceman, uh, you know, he does kind of get naked on his own as well. And while this is kind of a fantasy of the guy crash landing into paradise and finding a girl, uh, you know, a beautiful native, you know, at the same time, there are some really nice character bits. When he shoots the bird, it not, like, flips her off, when he <laughs> actually, like, with his laser pistol kills a, an avian creature, and the look on her face, it's, it's, it's actually kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, she's, in, she's impressed with him using the gun for target practice, until he kills another living creature. And and it, it just it made me sad because for her, you know, these creatures, there's probably no difference, you know what I'm saying? Like they're just as important to the you know, to the environment as he is. So for him to so callously just destroy it, you know, broke her heart. And I like the idea that, you know, he leaves and is forever haunted by this experience and she's just joyfully playing with her baby. Mm. Yeah, if he'd stuck around, he would have had this idyllic experience as well. So you, you talked about the there being no sexism in the nudity. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that what he was playing with here was this woman lives this perfectly idyllic experience with no problems at all until a man shows up. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't thinking on that level. Wow. <laughs> I see. Maybe maybe that's there. just me. <laughs> no. That saw that. But, Once you put it on yeah. the table, you can't unsee it now. But yeah, that final panel, whereas if you'd have gotten over your fear of the unknown, essentially, and stuck around with the woman, you would have been living this lovely, idyllic experience life instead of sat in the, the Star Wars cantina ruining your liver. I thought that was quite a nice little moral. (laughs) Play that same song again! (laughs) Um, I did like as well that the people that pick him up look like they've just walked off Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a nice little touch. (laughs) Now, I've never seen the original of this. Does the space suit that he wears in the beginning of this version look the same as the original? Uh, I don't have my Dark Horse copy because it would have get, meant getting it down. And at the moment, my knee wasn't up to that. So I've got my art of John Byrne one. I, did, I didn't really notice this until Dave pointed out. When he starts off, he's on the lunar landscape with no helmet on. So obviously, the atmosphere is vaguely breathable. He only puts the helmet on later on. Well, the reason why I ask that is uh, I recently, for another show, read... Action Comics Annual Number Six, which was an Elseworlds annual. Oh, that's a good one. That's a very good one. It's a very good. And and it was kind of interesting to see the spacesuit that he designed for Garl looks a lot like this. In the in the in the observation I made is that this is very '90s Burn, and that's what this artwork strikes me as. When you look at Burn in the 80s, when you look at Burn at the 90s in Marvel, and then when he went off on his own and did Next Men, 
his tech took on kind of a newer look. And that's what this reminds me of. The, the, the way the suit looks and the way the technology looks. Until, of course, we get to Naked Woman in the Jungle. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I think his art in the, the 1980 black and white one is very much more like his later 90s art than it is his 80s X-Men stuff. I think proving that he could have been doing stuff this detailed all along if he wasn't on a monthly schedule. And his stuff yeah. is detailed anyway. But in this, it's particularly good. Yeah, the spacesuit is incredibly detailed, the backgrounds. I mean, earlier on, David mentioned he does normally have a thicker line when he inks himself. That doesn't seem to be present here Mm -mm. in the black and white version. He does seem to have a much thinner line than he normally does. I I like this. I I think it's a nice little short 2000 AD story with naked women, (laughs) you know. And naked Kenny Rogers. Yeah, and naked Kenny Rogers. I can do without naked Kenny Rogers. <laughs> Everyone considered him the coward of the galaxy. No, we, uh, me and my brother got this, the physical copy I have here, when it was 90, I mean, it was in 92, it was at a sale, and, of course, being very young teenagers, we giggled. <laughs> now, the only thing, we just knew Movie. this is, yeah, exactly, I mean, I'm, I'm I, there's no shame in my game from that age, I, I was what it was. Having revisited this, you know, it's an amazing piece of storytelling. It shows what Byrne can really do. Now, as Andy pointed out, the line works a little bit different. It looks like he was inked by Mobius, which is an odd thing to say. You'd have to see the art. No, that's very... um, Yeah, because there's a a lot of H.R. Geiger in this as well. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of alien in it. Yep. And it was just... Mm -hmm. as, As Michael pointed out, the body language is extraordinary the expressions on the face and of course burns faces are distinctive that's how he became one of the first artists i would recognize his little dimples his chin lines uh the, or the, the jaw lines of his characters and he really outdid himself with this yeah and considering it's so early in his career as well what do you think if the dark horse era had led to him just becoming a creator owned person rather than going back to Marvel and DC after John Byrne's next men. Do you think he'd still be in the same phase of his career he's in now? Or do you think he'd be in a much different place if not only had he carried on doing next men, but he'd carried on doing stuff like this, but for Dark Horse? Because my understanding is he just got a little bit obsessed with sales figures and Danger Unlimited was only selling something like 75,000, so he cancelled it. He wanted it to not be a vanity project. He wanted it to sell what comics were selling back then. Now, 75,000 nowadays, people well, kill to, for those figures. To be fair, he was also kind of resentful of image. Uh, I, I think that's a fair statement to make uh, with you know, his comments and such at the time that he wanted to prove you know, that it isn't all art, which is odd with a story like this when it's all art. Mm-hmm. But still... You know, he struck me as just being kind of, I don't want to say jealous, but just, you know, when, when Spawn and even Youngblood and Savage Dragon are popping numbers like they are, to have his book with a, with him being more established and having a pretty good fan base and not being able to meet that. Now, to be fair, I never knew Danger Unlimited existed until about six years ago. I was vaguely aware of Next Men, but it just didn't grab me at the time. And I remember another project he did around this time called Babe. See, my daughter uh, loves Babe. 
I've never read it, uh, and I'm kind of curious about it, but it just seemed like that's what he was kind of gearing towards. And yeah, that's what I'm... If he'd carried on doing that, and then only popped back over to Marvel and DC for, for random projects. Because he doesn't seem interested in playing in the wider universe anymore. He's more interested yeah. in doing stuff like Generations or Action Comics Annual Number 6, standalone adventures. But the market isn't there for that anymore, which I think is a real shame. Bob Fisher discussed this on his Superman show, that people weren't buying Adventures of Superman, the digital book, because it, it didn't fit in the canon and it's like, as comic fans, are we now at the point where we're not interested in a good story well told? It has to be part of the overall mythology. And more and more, I'm getting bored of the overall mythology, and I just want a good story. Well, to, to be fair, especially in the case of DC, and I, and I can't really speak to Marvel, but in the case of DC, it's like the overall mythology doesn't even matter. Because they can change something on a whim to suit whatever the writer who is working on that particular story needs it to work. Or you have characters established one way and then less than a year later saying, no, 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 that's not the way it is, which seems kind of a cheat to your audience. Uh, I don't know if, if Marvel is doing that so much. It seems like Marvel, as much as I'm not interested in what's going on at Marvel right now, it seems at least they're trying different things but not throwing everything out to do that. I think that's a good um, description, especially when you look at something like Silver Surfer. Mm. Is it the Silver Surfer we've known before? It's it's not entirely yet. There's still that trace character. It's it's not a completely different element. It's Doctor it, Who with the Silver it's, Surfer. It's Doctor Who, yeah, and it's it's a great read. Yeah. See, my my main difference with Marvel and DC at the minute is Marvel now, they've basically said, here's a new take on old characters, but we haven't invalidated what's gone before. And I've got to be honest with you, a lot of the Marvel Now stuff speaks to me more. She-Hulk's brilliant. Charles Sewell's She-Hulk is magnificent. Ghost Rider was exceptionally interesting. Maybe the art wasn't to my tastes, but it was an interesting take on that established character. And Silver Surfer, I think it's brilliant. I really enjoyed the first two issues of Silver Surfer. And it's, it's more a case of... And they seem to leave their people alone a little bit. I've seen an article on Bleeding Cool where basically Axel Alonso says, look, this crossover event will happen in this month, so you have to get your character to that event. But what you do up until then is entirely up to you. Tell whatever story you want to tell. And that seems to be giving them a little bit more freedom within the confines of working on corporate comics where you have an event every year. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm actually interested to see what's done with some of the books within this yeah. original sin. I mean, I think if Byrne could swallow his pride and pitch a few ideas to, to Axel Alonso or Bravoot, I think he could find a home at Marvel now. Maybe not so much DC at the minute. I, don't, I think DC is so far away now from the kind of comics Byrne wants to make that he just wouldn't be interested in work. I mean, he's even turned down offers to just do covers and stuff. They asked him to do a cover for the um, retroactive series and he turned them down and they asked him to do something else recently. And he, he said, no, I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was adventures of Superman. I don't know. But I think if he'd swallow his pride a little bit and, and pitch them some ideas, I think Marvel now could offer him something. And I think he'd be at home though. Cause I think Axel Alonso would probably leave him alone. And if the book sold, then it sells. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And I'm not just talking about let's put him back on Fantastic Four because I don't think that works. You can't go home again. The John Byrne of now is not the John Byrne of 1985. 
so I don't think putting him on the FF would work. Maybe get him to do an FF annual or a mini or something, and then have him work on something that he's maybe never worked on before. You know, give him Warlock or something and see what he does with it. Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. I would read that. Yeah, because he's good at Cosmic. And if he wants to, give him Star-Lord or a, a Star-Lord-like character that ties into the Guardians of the Galaxy books, but he's off on its own. And let him, let him do that, especially with Guardians of the Galaxy coming out soon. Well, if he's turning down work, what is he doing to make a living, or is he just semi-retired? No, he's, he he is a Star Trek artist right now. Oh, well, he's not even an artist though. He's doing I was say, yeah. photo novels. Have you seen them? Have no. you read them? His Star Trek photo novels are actually really, really good. In that, what he's doing is he's using Photoshop to manipulate stilled images from the original track to create new stories. And he's done two of them so far that are really good. I miss his art. But for those of us that think J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movies are an abortion, these are really lovely to get new <laughs> episodes of Star Trek, essentially, and they're really good. So he seems he's working a lot on IDW, and his Star Trek work's been great. I've just read the five-issue series Crew, which follows the adventures of Majel Barrett's character from The Cage, showing her graduating the Academy and working her way up through the ranks to eventually be positioned on the Enterprise. And that's a really good series as well. But he seems to make most of his money nowadays from commissions. Yeah, and, you know, he's got a fan base that can probably set him up for that quite well, too. Cause yeah, and he's, he's, always, he's always been very open about his money situation as well. On his forum, he said, if he put his pencil down tomorrow and did not a jot of work for the next 10 years, he could live quite comfortably. Yeah, because I'm sure he's gotten money over the years that uh, are, you know, pretty much puts him in a pretty you know, good position financially. Yeah, he said Superman made him a millionaire. Oh, yeah, the, the, the royalties and stuff yeah. he was probably and, But also the, the other stuff that he got to do as part of that, actually working on Superman 4, even though none of his ideas were ever used, he said he got a huge chunk of change for that. Yeah, because Hollywood will pay you stupid money for stuff that you never actually work on. There are screenwriters who have never had a movie made that live in mansions. So, yeah. And then you start thinking, well, where are we going wrong? Because I'm sure between the three of us, we could pitch a great movie. <laughs> well, the- well, you know, the, the Magnum P.I. Quantum Leap movie will happen one day. I swear <laughs> that. I know it will. No matter that it takes an eternity. No, no. Sorry, Tom Selleck's Magnum. Anything that isn't Tom Selleck as Magnum, I'm not no, interested. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that Sam is Magnum. I'm oh, right. That... Oh, you want to do the Quantum Leap episode where he becomes Magnum? Yeah. Yeah, that, that would be brilliant. I also think there there's something to be said for a Quantum Leap episode where he leaps into Dr. David Banner. Oh! <laughs> so many great ideas if you could do crossover TV shows. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's only relegated to fanfic. Hmm. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. 
Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.